Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9 to continue our study in the church's history book. It's good to know your history, right? They tell us if you fail to learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat its failure. I, I don't know if that's particularly the point of the book of Acts for the church. Uh, although I guess if you're, you know, we certainly can learn things from Ananias and Sapphira and people like that. It certainly is there. Um, but Acts chapter 9 tonight, we're going to look at um, a real critical passage. Remember, uh, one of the goals of the book of Acts is to tell us uh, how we moved from Jew and synagogue to Gentile in the church. Uh, how, is, how is Jesus going to do that? I mean, that's, that's quite a catastrophic, or catastrophic is not quite the right word, but that's a big turn um, where the Gentiles, of all people, people like you, people like me, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're not a very attractive people from uh, a religious perspective. Uh, we, we love our gods, and we are very... Uh, irreverent in our thought. We're not monotheists, typically, like our Jew, Jewish friends are or were back then. And uh, the program is changing, and uh, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. So we meet this uh, gentleman by the name of Saul, who is going to play a critical role in this great programmatical turn. He, he's going to be uh, uh, an apostle that's ordained to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's going to be responsible for writing a good portion of our New Testament. And uh, so he's a key figure. And he's, he's just so happens to be really a final key figure. Uh, I think Pastor Hobbes spoke about Philip and about Stephen, uh, two other very key figures as the gospel slowly moves out of Jew and synagogue into Gentile and church. Uh, and and uh, those key figures, and Paul's sort of the capstone of these key figures that the Holy Spirit and his wisdom surfaces for us. Uh, so we're going to take a, a look at, at this portion of Scripture. We're not going to do quite the whole chapter. Uh, we're just going to go up to verse 31. Uh, we'll do it in record time. No, I'm kidding. We, we have plenty of time here to do that. Uh, certainly is a blessing uh, before the Lord's table, and uh, uh, truly our hearts are moved. But let's pray together tonight as we think about what the Lord has for us here. Father, we <clears throat> thank you so much for uh, the unstoppable movement of the gospel uh, from Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, so you have uh, reached out to the Gentiles, as the book of Acts records, in a very astonishing way. And uh, we uh, are so very grateful uh, we confess we are, uh, we are lost without the gospel reaching out. And uh, we thank you so much that you, uh, two millennia ago, more than two millennia ago, uh, began to work among the Gentiles. And we who are not a people have been made a people of God. In fact, we have been crowned with uh, unspeakable riches. And uh, we have been given a new identity, adopted into the family of God. We, as pastor has taught us from the book of Romans, we have been grafted in by faith, and we're greatly humbled by that. 
and we thank you. We thank you for the church, uh, that grand assembly of believing people. Uh, we thank you that in your good providence, you have raised up in this geographic location a witness to the Gentiles and the community of Mentor, the state of Ohio. And we thank you that you have, uh, to this point, allowed this lampstand to shine brightly. And we pray that uh, this generation would steward well that responsibility to keep that light burning bright as we all participate in making disciples, as we all uh, are burdened for our community, and uh, we long to see them come to know Jesus and to be taught everything that Jesus commanded us. And so, Lord, that we would faithfully transfer our responsibility to the next generation. We thank you for these things. They don't weigh heavy on us. They're certainly sobering. But we know that uh, this is all simply connected to your word. So, Lord, help us to know it, to live it, to love it, and to uh, seek to share it. We commend these things to you tonight. Lord, challenge our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the, uh, the book of Acts... Uh, the author Luke pauses and he gives little uh, uh, reports on how things are going in the church. And we have one of those in our passage tonight, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it continued to increase. And uh, in, in all, many of the other reports that are sprinkled throughout the book of Acts, not only do we have information about the church, but we have information of the fact that um, the word of God was increasing. And, and so we observe very simply that the church's health and success is, is intimately intertwined with an understanding of the word of God and the degree to which uh, God's people in the local New Testament church are responding to the word of God is the degree to which the lampstand, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, burns in this community. And obviously, if for some reason, God forbid, that we ever decide that the word of God is no longer important, then we would expect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to remove the lampstand and take it somewhere else, uh, the believing remnant of people, uh, so that they can be fed and they can continue to, to know uh, the Word. Uh, we thank the Lord that He has said in, in Matthew 16 that He will build His church. There is perpetuity. Uh, but we have responsibility, at least in this geographic location, to remain true to the Word of God. And uh, that's each and every one of ours' responsibility. Uh, so I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not stand against it, Jesus said in Matthew 16. And it is clear in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 uh, that the church has the resurrected Jesus' full attention. If you have opportunity, I'd recommend you to look at that passage of Scripture. Um, I think sometimes as a local assembly, we're not very big. Uh, we're not certainly the majority uh, in terms of our own community. Uh, sometimes we hear about parachurch ministries and how wonderful they are and, and all the things, grand things that are going on there. But when you look at Revelation 2 and 3, there is really only one place that has the full attention of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. And that is local, geographically located, that's what I mean by local, 
New Testament churches that are duly ordained with proper authority. Jesus' message goes to the messenger, who's in fact probably the pastor of those local assemblies. But those assemblies have Jesus' full attention. And in the church age, he's, he's, he's watching us. He's interested. He, he's, he's wanting us to stand against apostasy and, and doctrine that's not true. And all the while, remembering our first love, disciple-making, reaching out and sharing. So the church has the resurrected Jesus' full attention. In Acts chapter 9, Luke, uh, the historian, reports Jesus' personal care and power as he champions the cause of the church. As already mentioned, we know that Stephen had already been murdered. Uh, Jesus, the champion, stood there with Stephen in that hour of martyrdom, welcoming him him personally into his presence. What a great comfort. However, as noted, the aggression and intimidation by the person of Saul of Tarsus continues to threaten the infant church. Uh, We see that, uh, just hold your finger in 9 and chapter 7, we see that uh, sort of in a foreboding, uh, foreshadowing way in verse 58, uh, the villain, if you will, for lack of a better word, uh, uh, is, is holding the coats of, of, of those who are stoning Stephen to death. And he's doing so uh, with uh, great approval. Uh, and when they had driven out, uh, and when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. That's Stephen. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. This is problematic. Uh, This is foreshadowing of a very ominous sort. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 1, this Saul is in hearty agreement with putting to death Stephen, putting him to death. In verse number 3, it's reported, uh, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Verse 4, however, the church continues to spread and grow, but this Saul is one bad man. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read again, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, The Greek language here in verse number one, this idea of Saul breathing out threats and murder carries with it the idea that this is, in fact, the very warp and woof of all that Saul is. He he literally eats, drinks, and breathes this threatening, murderous reality. This is the grand obstacle. Uh, What would Jesus do? His hand's going to be hampered. What will he do? Saul was a complicit murderer of church saints. He was a a ravager of the church. One who himself, himself bound, threatened, and even murdered church saints. If that weren't enough, he made these uh, activities 
the law of the land. He, he went to the high priest and demanded letters so that he could be about this horrific business. Who would come to the aid of the infant church? And our proposition tonight is this glorious one. The resurrected Jesus is the champion of the church. Uh, you know, we're not a real spectacular group. Uh, uh, we ebb and flow. We are strong in faith at times, very weak in faith. We need a champion. And the resurrected Jesus here in Acts chapter 9 demonstrates his intimate love and concern and his willingness to champion, to be the champion of the church. So first of all tonight, Jesus demonstrates he is a champion of the church by the power of conversion, by the power of conversion. We see this in verses 1 through 9. We've already read verses 1 and 2, verse 3, and it came about that as he journeyed at Saul, he was approaching Damascus to do his dastardly deeds, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him, leading him, yes, leading him by the hand like a little child needs to be led by the hand. They brought this breathing, threatening, ravaging man to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Jesus, the champion of the church, converts Saul. You know, the definition of the word convert, it's simply to bring over from one belief, view, or party to another. My friend, Jesus took, historically, the worst enemy of the church, and he converted him. Jesus brought Saul over from one belief, a view, and a party to another. And this really sort of opens up our understanding in the New Testament what the church is all about. Our Old Testament counterparts, what did the theocratic king do to the enemies of Israel? Well, he completely eliminated their influence off the face of the earth. He was the king. He had no time or patience for Philistines, for Canaanites, who, went, who were a whoring after other gods, and he would eliminate their influence. God vindicated his name. In the church, God continues to vindicate his name, but in a more fantastic way. He takes influence that was chasing after all of the interests of Satan, all of the things that God doesn't value. And not only does he eliminate it, but he turns that individual's influence to all that Jesus loves, all that Jesus longs for, holiness. He completely vindicates his name by not only removing influence, 
but bringing the power of that influence into the church and using it for his honor and glory. This is a vindication of an altogether different kind. And my friend, this is the vindication that has happened to you. Uh, this, you were a rebel. You were somebody who Romans 1, as pastor has taught us, was a truth suppressor. That's what you were very good at. You were very good at, at, at following the appetites of your own belly. And I would dare argue that the only time you truly got upset is when somebody tried to get in your way and say, hey, stop, don't do that. That infuriated you because you were the master of your own fate. And, uh, but Jesus, instead of simply eliminating your influence, thankfully, this is the age of grace and truth, he had mercy on you. And he moved your influence out of uh, the realm of Satan and sin and death. And he wants you to fully use that influence for the kingdom of light, of all that Jesus is. We observe from our text here that conversion is pinpointed in the person of Jesus. And this is very significant because this too really establishes for the church what is at issue. Uh, it's very interesting that at the announcement of, of, of this voice from heaven, there's a lot of things that could have been announced. You know, uh, Instead of saying, I am Jesus, he could have said, I am God, I am Lord, I am the Christ, all of these titles. But those are the things that weren't at issue uh, for Paul. What was at issue for Paul was the historic Jesus of Nazareth who walked the dusty roads of Galilee, who being a man claimed to be God. How arrogant is that? And yet, the church is proclaiming that what Jesus said to be true of himself is in fact true. He is God. He says, I, or he says, I am Jesus, my earthly name, whom you, Paul, Saul, are persecuting. <clears throat> so conversion, true conversion, my friend, is pinpointed in the person of Jesus. The question that Paul asks is a critical question, and it's a question that we all need to ask. Who are you, sir? It's essentially what's going on here. I don't think we want to take anything too significant make anything too significant when Paul says, who art thou, Lord? I don't think that that was an indication of Paul understanding the lordship. Uh, no, I think he understood that this was something uh, far beyond himself. Um, who are you, sir? He asked that question, and he waits to listen. In other words, he doesn't dream up an idea about who this Jesus is. No, Jesus speaks for himself. <clears throat> Jesus, like I already mentioned, Saul thought Jesus to be worse than a fake and a fraud, but the voice identified himself as Jesus. Uh, and essentially, all that Paul thought came crashing down. And immediately, what does Jesus do? He begins to command Saul. Uh, these are imperatives. Uh, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Verse 6, immediately comes the command, the imperative mood. When Jesus converts you, 
Jesus comes into your life in the imperative mood. Here it's rise up, get up, and go into a city. Jesus immediately asserts his authority. Conversion is when Jesus Christ asserts his authority into your life. The implications, as we've mentioned, are astounding uh, for Saul. This historic figure is alive. Not only is he alive, and, and so that means he's conquered death. He's in heaven. This light comes from heaven, and the voice comes from heaven. And he has amazing power. I have letters from the high priest, and I have no power. I'm immediately thrown off my horse. He is personally and intimately connected with his disciples and, and the church. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There is an intimate relationship between Jesus and his disciples. They're connected. And he is uh, the disciple of the, 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 the Lord of those who follow the way, who follow the way. So the implications are astounding for Paul as, as Jesus cuts out all the light, Paul is blind, and he is left to contemplate the implications of this historic figure who is alive in heaven, who has all authority and power, who is exactly who on earth he said he was. And now Paul life is going to change. It's going to change momentously, absolutely momentously. Um, so these realities ultimately shape Paul's first message. Uh, we read in verse 19 and 20, when Paul finally turns around, um, I'm sorry, not 19 and 20, uh, I have the wrong verses here, but he's going to proclaim the message of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. There it is in verse 20. And immediately he begins to proclaim, once these things work through in his heart, that Jesus is divine. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of heaven. He is the living water. He is the true vine. He is everything that He said, and He has complete authority over us. Saul's converted. And that conversion is a function of the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. You know, a primary application that we must make in this first point about conversion is this, is Jesus is personally responsible for conversion of every soul in this audience. Uh, he does it with Saul. He does it in a very outstanding way. We don't need to expect that we're going to see light and fall off our horse. Uh, those realities are more along the line of what Saul is being called to in his gifting as an apostle. Uh, we read in Acts 1 that there was a requirement that if you're going to be an apostle, you have to see the resurrected Lord. So seeing the resurrected Lord, hearing his voice directly is more connected with what Saul is going to be, an apostle. But before he can be an apostle, he needs to be converted. 
He needs to be submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus has all authority. Conversion, can we say this? Conversion of your soul is not a function of what you may or may not think about Jesus. Rather, it is a function, in fact, of who Jesus is. He is the divine Son of God. He is alive. You see, Saul's conversion demonstrates that mere religious sincerity is insufficient. Was Paul sincere? Or Saul sincere? Absolutely, but my friends, he was sincerely wrong about the authority of Jesus Christ. And he was on his way to hell. Authority. Sincerity is not the measure. The person of Jesus Christ is the measure. He's the measure. It's what he says of himself. He is the light of the world, we said already. He is the logos, the very word of life that comes down from heaven. He commands you to repent of your sin and believe. He commands it. And to not do so, the Bible says that you are condemned because already because you do not believe. That is the, that is the heinous work, is we don't believe the word of Jesus. And then our life... It's just filled with all of the implications of that reality in sin. Um, so he commands you to repent. You will not see a light or hear the audible voice of Jesus. We've said that already. What is noteworthy for us is the complete humbling and change of life. Has Jesus so impressed your mind and heart that he commands you and directs you with a simple word? Has the orientation of your life completely been converted? That's the question of salvation. That's the question of true saving faith. Now, obviously, we don't understand all the implications of that when we're born again. But when Jesus Christ saves us, when He converts us, that thought and that idea of being wholly submitted to Jesus is the destiny of our life. Everything that we do, as struggling and as difficult as it is, it's seeking to conform into His image and to be just that. And you know, folks, if, if you have real no, really no interest in that, you know, if, if when you were born again, you kind of just added Jesus as sort of a rabbit's foot to your life because your life was kind of going bad and you needed something to kind of, you know, get you through. Jesus kind of... Sort of your, you know, your ambient or your, that, that is so far from the Word of God's representation of what tr being truly converted is. Okay? And we need to see that in Saul. And this is a guy that's completely humbled. Completely humbled. So, the second and comforting application we want to make here, and we already made mention of it, is, is the intimacy that Jesus has with the church. This is an intimacy that, again, our Old Testament counterparts didn't enjoy here. Jesus says, to persecute the church is to persecute me. For those of you who endure difficult family realities, when you're born again, and, and, and now you're walking to the beat of the drum of the Word of God, and, and, and Jesus has converted you, and you're walking by His authority now, and your family doesn't understand you, and your friends no longer quite understand you, and 
and you're trying to reach out to them as Jesus has called you to do and make disciples of them, but, but they're, 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 they, they, they can be mean. They don't know what to do with you. They no longer invite you to family gatherings. Perhaps some of you are going through that. Now, know, know well that as you're persecuted, Jesus is intimately acquainted with that persecution. He knows that, and he's feeling that. And uh, he's intimately acquainted with it. So Jesus is champion of the church uh, because he is personally responsible for the conversion of lost souls. Nobody else is. Nobody else formulates the church. It's Jesus. And he does so by conversion. He does so by conversion. In addition, Jesus is champion of the church because he transforms all the converts, all those he converts. Uh, Jesus, the champion of the church, transforms, and particularly in our text, it's, it's our reputation. It, it is our standing in, in the spheres of our influence. It completely changes. Uh, we have that here with, the, with, with Saul. Um, so Saul was such an imposing figure. Uh, in, in verse number 10, uh, we, we see nobody really kind of wanted to touch him with a 10-foot pole. Uh, he was a fearful guy. He was a guy that the church was hiding from, not that the church was, was embracing. Uh, but here, God converts this man, and he commands. He commands Ananias, and he ultimately commands the church to embrace this new convert, to embrace this new convert. And, and, as, and, and in doing so, he transforms Paul's, or Saul's reputation. He transforms it. Uh, Ananias, he, he says, look, Lord, hey, this guy's reputation isn't the best. Yes, Lord, I'm here. I'm hearing from you. Uh, the Lord says in verse 11, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man uh, from Tarshish named Saul. Jesus knows so much detail about the church. For behold, he is praying. There's this breathing out, arrogant man is humbled now. He is praying, and, and you'll find him there, and I want you to lay your hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And Anna and I said, <laughs> verse 13, wait a minute, Lord, I, I've what? I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who called upon thy name. <laughs> but the Lord said, look. That's inconsequential. Go. 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 And make a disciple. This, this is well, sort of sets up the whole New Testament for the church. What do you, what do you mean? We, we don't have people who are being invited into the church, who are being converted, are not, are not put together. They're not, they're not um, racially related to a long family line of believing people. They're, no, we're Gentiles. The church has to get over this fear of, of this fact that Jesus converts lost people. And here we have, I believe, at uh, some level an expectation, at least in part, of Jesus' desire for one-on-one -on -one to bring people into the local New Testament church and how necessary that is, particularly for a guy like Saul. They were afraid of him, and well, they should be. The Holy Spirit never condemns the church for keeping their hands away from Saul for a while. Never does. But two men 
put their, you know, their, 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 their salvation on the line, their, their, their own character, and they demand that the apostles hear this Saul. It was obviously Ananias we have here, and then later on Barnabas. Um, verse 26, we see Barnabas sort of having uh, 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 interaction uh, with him. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, a gifted man. Uh, he's not so much caught up, although there's probably been some time now for Saul to become more Paul. And Barnabas takes hold of him in verse 27 and brings him to the apostles. And he describes to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Uh, and he goes on and, and the, the apostles are convinced by Barnabas to receive uh, Paul or Saul, who will become Paul. Um, so before Jesus converts a man or a woman, their reputations are built upon their own self-serving interests. When Jesus gets a hold of a man or a woman, reputations are not just improved, they're not just reformed, they are completely transformed. Truly transformed believers, however, never get over how sinful and repugnant they were to the God of heaven before Jesus converted and transformed them. This is the genius of saving faith. It leads to a lifelong sin-repenting attitude. Paul displayed this. Uh, turn in 1 Corinthians, really quick, go there, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Here, Paul, you know, one of the greatest chapters of all the New Testament, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here Paul rehearses, um, uh, verse, uh, uh, sort of this uh, appear, the, uh, his, the resurrected appearance. Again, Acts 1, we're given this information that this has to be true, uh, that he appeared to Cephas, the resurrected Jesus, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And the last of all, as it were an untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fitted to be called an apostle. Why? Because I horrifically persecuted the church. Paul never got over his conversion, never got over how Jesus had come in and transformed him and what he once was. It was this continual sin-repenting attitude that dominated his life. This humility. Again, he references it in Galatians. Go over to Galatians chapter 1. You know, this just isn't sort of a sentiment for Paul. You know, what Paul's saying is really true. He was the worst. He was the worst. Uh, and, and we, who are outside of Jesus Christ, remember that we were not quite Pauline, in our attack of the church, but we were very bad. He says it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. I was zealous for my ancestral traditions, and on he goes. But these are not happy words for Saul, for Paul at this time. These are difficult things. We never get over that. We always have that 
sin-repenting attitude. Uh, one preacher put it this way, uh, we realize that uh, uh, no doubt the problem is with me. I mean, uh, that wouldn't surprise me as a believer in this particular, whatever situation we might find ourselves in, that it is a healthy and a right thing to be humble, to be that learner that Jesus has called us to, to be. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says this, remember on that sin list, and he says, and such were some of you, such were some of you, such were some, was I. So Jesus is a champion of the church because he converts, he transforms, and finally tonight because he chooses and empowers instruments to serve. And uh, Paul obviously exemplifies that in a par excellent way. Uh, he, he's a choice instrument, and he is going to be used, he's going to be used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's a choice instrument. He's filled by the Spirit of God for service, uh, just like you and I are. He has a, he, you and I are. He has a very special calling as apostle to the Gentiles. He is going to be that beacon of hope through which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make a people of those who are not a people, <laughs> to use Old Testament verbiage. And it's you and I. He proclaims masterfully, powerfully the deity of Jesus Christ. And he proclaims uh, that he, in fact, to these Hellenistic Jews, to the Jews he would meet, that he is the Messiah come. So when Jesus converts, when Jesus transforms, and when Jesus gathers that up and brings into the church chosen instruments and gifts them, as Paul serves as an example, what is the outcome? What is the outcome for us? Well, the church enjoys peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continues to increase. This is how you build the church. This is that, the cool, attractive model. You preach the authority of Jesus Christ, and you long for Him to convert sinners. And as He converts sinners, He transforms their reputation in such a powerful way and chooses them as special instruments to an application to us to go and make another disciple. And, uh, you know, the church has problems when her membership isn't converted. There's a lot of churches today that portions of their membership are unconverted. Nobody grasps the mission. Everybody's there for their own interests. God has not called us to that. If we're converted... Uh, when we walk through the doors of this assembly, uh, we know what our task is, and that's to make disciples. All that other stuff, you know, that gets set aside. We serve each other, we build each other up with our gifting, and we go and make disciples. And we, we reckon the reality that we are all being transformed from grace to grace. Uh, and what a joy that is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Uh, the illustration of this amazing conversion. It sets the tone for the whole New Testament church, I believe. And we thank you for uh, your power, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we pray that we would exemplify that we have been converted, that we would be transformed all the time, Lord, and uh, that we would continue to have that sin-repenting attitude 
Lord, as we remember how awful we were outside of Christ, serving ourselves. And we pray that you would please, please uh, keep us humble and keep us moving in a, uh, in a disciple-making direction, loving the souls of men, uh, just like you do, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.